I'll leave those tissues for later. Well, good morning, everyone. I love that idea of joining in with the roar of the angels. So um, I'm going to count to three, and I want you to say, praise the Lord. And uh, if the angels are roaring, that implicates you to a certain decibel <laughs> level. I love the prayer for Alpha, because when we declare the name of Jesus, that pushes back the darkness. When we declare the name of Jesus over our communities, people that are bound in darkness and difficulty, those captives will be set free. When we declare the name of Jesus, that's when the kingdom comes and we need to be a people who are roaring with the angels. This is difficult for us in our kind of Anglophile culture, but undoubtedly and indisputably it is a biblical truth that God's people are the ones who love to declare his name. Yes? So we'll do some posh English Anglican liturgy. I will count to three and then you will roar, praise the Lord. Okay? So I don't know if you watched the Japanese this week in terms of their ability to roar. I think it left us all in a different planet. But uh, let's ask that the joy of the Lord will come upon us as we declare his truth. One, two, three. Praise the Lord! That's probably average. One, two, th <laughs> one, two three. Praise the Lord! And finally, one, two, three. That's the kind of carpet that a preacher loves to walk on. So uh, if you're with the youth ministry here at Skipton, you go to the youth group, would you raise your hand? If you're a person attending the youth group, okay. Try to avoid me now. Well, you've passed the Rubicon now. You're not a young person anymore. Um, I'm going to uh, just, um, I've been praying. This book is called God's Smuggler. It was written by Brother Andrew, the founder of Open Doors, and there are 40 million copies of this book. It's a story of a young man who dreamed a dream and said, here am I, Lord, use me. And over the generations, over well over 60 years, this book has changed people's lives. So I have a sense that God's hand is upon your life. So I'm just going to give you that book. I'd love you to read it and pass it around. But I think some of the things that's going wrong in uh, the church at the moment is that somehow we've become pedestrian with our faith. When I became a Christian, I prayed the prayer, here am I, Lord, use me. Uh, I come from a village in Ireland where there are seven churches, five pubs, a war memorial, and a pigeon loft. <laughs> and I stood before the altar when I was 17 at the church where my parents are buried, where my grandparents are buried, and I laid my hands before God, and I said, here am I, Lord, use me. I want you to know, young people, that when you surrender your heart to Christ, it is as far away from being boring as it could ever possibly be. Your life becomes caught up in the alchemy of heaven where he desires that there is not one human being that would walk a life without being in relationship with him. And we have the high honor of being agents and carriers of the salt and the light of the kingdom of God into our lives. And that is far from being pedestrian. That is the greatest honor and the highest adventure that any human being could possibly enter into. Do you agree with what I've just said? Give God a kind of a clap offering. I'll be praying for you. So as a, an itinerant preacher, uh, one of the things that happens to you is that you need to be on your toes all the time. I was in Weston Supermare recently. Has anyone ever been to the Costa del Weston Supermare? Um, and uh, apparently in this Anglican church, they have a tradition when a visiting preacher comes, they do this little quiz with him about two truths and a lie. Imagine, 
The confliction of being a carrier of truth, being asked to tell two truths and a lie in front of a congregation of God's people. And it was just, he gave me three minutes notice, this elegant Anglican vicar. And I went to the front and I heard myself say these three things. So work out with me which is true and which is a lie. So I have a son who is six feet, four and a half inches tall. Well, they were laughing their heads off in the situation. How is it conceivable that a hobbit could have a son who's six feet four, whatever the height is? The second thought was that I've driven around Silverstone in a Porsche 911 at 147 miles an hour. Is it possible that a gentle Irish pastor could do such a thing like that? And the third truth was that I have, in uh, Central Asia, eaten uh, parts of big hairy beasties' bodies, something equivalent of I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. Uh, is it possible that that could have happened to me? So let's just raise your hand. I have a son who is six feet, four and a half inches tall. Is it true? Well, you've met me before, so you already know. You were t- okay, so the second thing is I've driven around Silverstone at um, 127, 147 miles an hour in a Porsche 911. Okay, and uh, do you think that I've eaten questionable parts of a big hairy beastie's? Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. <laughs> that is all true. I wish I could do the Porsche 911. You know, truth uh, today is uh, quite a delicate commodity. I have a little clicker if that helps. And uh, it's red. Good. Okay. It should be green. Always never perform with a PowerPoint or children or animals. Um, <laughs> I do have a sense that what I've brought you today, or what I'm about to bring to you, is something from the heart of God. And your prayer before I spoke was precious, but I'd just like you to have a moment. Would you put your hand over your heart? Worship was incredible today. The prophetic behavior of the children planting seeds of hope, being watered by our prayers, was powerful. It is a right expectation that when we come into God's presence individually that we have an expectation that God would speak to us. And so, Father, this morning, as we place our hands upon our hearts, I pray for the visitation of your Holy Spirit here, that you would hide me behind your cross, that your people would meet with you today in a transformative way, in so much as that their lives would be changed irreversibly. Thank you that you loved the world so much that you gave Jesus. Thank you that you love us so much that you have an individual purpose and a plan for each of our lives in terms of whatever generation it is, this adventure that you've birthed us into the kingdom for. So please will you unstop our ears. Dear Holy Spirit, tenderize our hearts, make Jesus so compelling to us and reshape our minds as we listen to your whispers this morning. I pray in Jesus' name I ask these things. And God's people said, Amen. I've just come back from uh, Egypt and um, I had the incredible privilege of meeting with leaders of the Coptic Church. That's the Egyptian Orthodox Church. For over 2,000 years they have been probably one of the most persecuted peoples on earth. And recently they were given the Nobel Peace Prize for their ability to forgive the extreme persecution that has been visited upon them 
in terms of the ways that they've returned that violence with acts of grace and forgiveness towards those who most virulently persecute them. And I spent time with the bishop um, who actually buried the Libyan martyrs, the 21 Egyptian laborers that were uh, murdered by Daesh. And he said to me, their blood was on my hands, but as I laid them to rest, I remembered that not one of them denounced their faith. And in their final moments before they went to heaven, they said, Jesus, I love you. What makes a life like that? And um, he told me that one of the great traditions of the Coptic church, which I've carried with me over these few weeks, I was aware of it before, but never more poignantly at the hand of this holy man who's led the church in the community where those martyrs uh, came from. He said, when I stand up and preach, I stand with a cross in front of me. And I reach out with that cross and I try as best I can to hide myself behind that cross of Christ so that I don't get in the way. And this morning, I want you to have that idea that you're tuning into something that is extraordinary and significant because every time God's people meet together, we should expect him to come here and do what only he can do, whether that's healing or whether that's deliverance or whether that's transformation or whether that's salvation. This is the place where it happens. Are you ready for that? So <clears throat> I, as a communicator, am captivated by the amazing ability of Jesus to tell stories that are extraordinary. They just, when, I don't know when the last time was you spent some time just reading through the stories that he told. They were remarkably conceived, and by default, I think, more than by design, I've become a storyteller. And uh, it's interesting these days that we're drowning in information whilst we're starving from wisdom. It felt like that on Saturday as I dipped in and out of the debate in Westminster, and that will be the only political comment that I will make. But there has never been a time when we need wisdom. And I believe that those who love the Lord have access to the divine source of wisdom, and my, how we need wisdom these days. And uh, I think that as a storyteller, I'm captivated by uh, commercials, and this one is one that um, I think is amazing. It's by Cadbury's. They were trying in this story that I'm about to show you to disarm all forms of stereotypes and make people think about what's really important in life. Let's watch this little story. Change. Happy birthday, love. There's a glass and a half in everyone. 
Isn't that a cracking story? This story is about generosity. The stereotypes that they're trying to challenge. Oh, I chose that specially because they spoke Yorkshire. <laughs> I thought I wouldn't need to translate. But they're trying to disarm stereotypes about single parents and single parents raising their children beautifully. See, I think generosity is not taught, it's caught. Saying thank you as a way of trading is caught, it's not taught, it's not ritualistic if it's sincere. This child wanted to say thank you to her hard-working mother on her birthday. And she was willing to make a huge sacrifice, the biggest sacrifice that she'd ever made, more than a button. Uh, there's the story. I mean, if she was mine, I would never leave the house. I would worship her. Those eyes, did you see those eyes? <laughs> Not only did she put one button down, she put two buttons down, she put three buttons down, and then she put her plastic diamond ring. And if even that wasn't enough as the exchange with the Muslim shopkeeper, if that wasn't enough, she gave her unicorn. Did you see the unicorn running about in church this morning? I thought that was a prophetic underpinning that I definitely had to tell the story. She gave the best that she possibly could. She went the extra mile. And then she looks down at that offering in the hope that it would be enough to buy the bar of chocolate. He looks deeply into her eyes. What a scary guy for a corner shop. I mean, you'd be taking your life in your hands if you went in there. But where did he learn generosity from? Where did he have the discernment as an elder man to see the beauty of the sacrifice of a child who was worth, worth going over a hundred miles to pay the best that she could? He had the audacity to give her change in the form of the most expensive thing that she ever had. He understood it. Where does that mindset come from? How do you learn it? How do you live in it? You know, that's the kind of world that I want to live in. A world of generosity and kindness and gentleness. This is the fruit of the kingdom of God. We come to light up the world. We don't come to make it gray. That's why Jesus came. He stepped out of the magnificence of heaven with the millennia of angels to come down on earth and bring the substance and the fruit and the generosity. God so loved the world that he gave out of his heart. And this morning I'm going to talk to you about generosity and kindness. I'm writing a book called The Twelve, about twelve people that I've met that are the most generous people on earth. I think as I look back over 20 years, working alongside the persecuted church, if there was to be a gold thread through the story, it's certainly arisen out of these 12 essays. It's their ability to be thankful people and generous people in the face of great adversity. Christine's going to come and read the scriptures to us in beautiful Scottish. You manage this. Is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through the dead to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Next part of the reading is uh, about Paul's faith in the church. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become a servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in his fullness the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. So then God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone, always so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Thank you, Christine. Preachers are taught that context is king. What do I mean uh, by that? Well, um, in this context in Colossians, uh, Paul was writing these words whilst he was in prison. Um, not this prison, uh, this is Stafford prison where I went recently. Uh, a man who had committed some very serious crimes remarkably came to faith in Christ and then circuitously discovered through reading a magazine that was lying around, an open doors magazine that was a persecuted church. And when he read the magazine, he discovered that there were people in prison because of their faith. And so he asked for permission from the chaplain to broadcast this. And now he's leading a group of 12 prisoners who pray every week for persecuted Christians that are behind bars. It's an amazing story, isn't it? But the prison that Paul was writing in was a, a heinous, ghastly place. He's shackled to the walls with chains. He's separated from friends. 
This man has been unjustly accused. He's brutally treated. If ever a person had a right to complain, it's this man languishing, almost forgotten in this harsh condition. But instead of complaints, his lips rang out with praise and thanksgiving so eloquently expressed in 1 Colossians. And clearly this remarkable man had learned the meaning of true thankfulness and thanksgiving even in the midst of great adversity. Earlier, when he'd been imprisoned in Rome, Paul wrote, Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5, 19-20. Think of it. Always giving thanks for everything, no matter what the circumstances. Thanksgiving for the Apostle Paul wasn't a once in a year celebration, but a daily reality that changed his life and made him a joyful person from the inside out. Thanksgiving, the giving of thanks to God for all of his blessings, should be one of the most distinctive marks of the believer in Jesus Christ. We must not allow a spirit of ingratitude to harden our heart and chill our relationships with God and others. Nothing turns us into bitter, selfish, dissatisfied people more quickly than an ungrateful heart. And nothing will do more to restore contentment and the joy of our salvation than a true spirit of thankfulness. And you will know the story well in the New Testament where ten lepers came to Jesus. And uh, I guess it was the uh, contemporary equivalent of HIV AIDS. But um, he laid his hands on these uh, terribly broken and destroyed human beings. And their dead flesh came alive and they were healed. And they went off celebrating that they've been made whole again. And they weren't toxic and they could get back to their families and their friends and live again, but only one of them came back to say thank you. Do you remember that? But today, there is a virus that's loose within the church and a virus that's loose within society that's called ingratitude and thankfulness, and it's far too common. Children forget to thank their parents for all that they do. Common courtesy is scorned. We take for granted the way that others help us. And above all, we fail to thank God for all of his blessings. Once you were alienated from God, but now he has made peace with God. It's an amazing, an amazing thing. An ungrateful heart is a heart that's cold towards God and indifferent towards his mercy and his love. And it is a heart that has forgotten how dependent that we are on God for every good thing. A a wise Irish friend of mine said to me last week, we were talking about this sermon and how I was wrestling with it to shape it. And he said to me, you know, Eddie, repetitive complaining will attract things for you to complain about. And repetitive gratitude will attract things for you to be thankful about. Would you like me to say that one more time? It's far too good to forget, I'm telling myself. Repetitive complaining will attract things for you to complain about, but repetitive gratitude will attract things for you to be thankful about. And from one end to the Bible to the other, we're commanded to be thankful. In fact, thankfulness is a natural outflowing of a heart that is attuned to God. So the psalmist said 
in Psalm 147, verse 7, singing unto the Lord with thanksgiving. And a spirit of thanksgiving is a mark of a joyful Christian. Now, I love traveling in the Far East because I'm a tall man in the Far East. And um, Lisa and I got to know Hei Wu a couple of years ago at Spring Harvest. We took her around Easter and summer festivals to meet the church in the West because we thought that her story would be an inspiration. So the backstory, if you haven't met Hei Wu before, was that she escaped North Korea and went to China during one of the famines. There were nine consecutive famines that raked North Korea. North Korea is the most dangerous place on earth to be a Christian. It's had the number one on the Open Doors World Watch list, not a particularly dignified status, but number one for the last 18 years. And when she went to China, she met some Christians and she fell in love with Jesus because of the beauty of the lives that she saw. However, there were underground spies in uh, China and she was repatriated and put in a prison for five years for escaping famine. I think it's a sad truth, isn't it? And in that situation, re-education is one of the principal ways within which the regimes are trying to remove the stain of Christianity from North Korean society. We think there are 100,000 Christians in forced labor in North Korea because of the fact that they have been identified as Christians. But what you maybe don't know is that there are 400,000 underground Christians worshiping our Lord today on a day-to-day -day basis. Isn't that amazing? And we need to pray for them, just like the watering of those seeds. We need to pray for them to be strong in their faith. Anyway, Hei Wu was put into this hard labor camp. She was brainwashed. She was interrogated. She was violently beaten, almost to the point of uh, intellectual meltdown and emotional breakdown. And then, during the night, one night, she had a dream where God spoke to her. And he said, you are my beloved daughter. You have walked in the water. I love you. And she said, she told 21,000 people of the revolution that went on in her soul. She became grateful for her salvation. So much so that she was convicted that God told her that she should go and tell the people about Jesus. Which is totally countercultural. How could you possibly do that in a place which was designed to eradicate Christianity and break you down? Her evangelism was giving her rations away, pieces of bread and small portions of rice and filthy water, but she gave it away out of a generous heart. And over a short period of time, five of her sister inmates came to faith in Jesus. It's a beautiful, beautiful, tender story. And then she said, God told me to plant a church inside prison. And she said, God, how do I plant a church inside prison? Everybody's watching. And he said, plant it in the lady's toilet. Put your hand up if you know this story, because I don't want to bore you. If you're hearing it for the first time, I'll paint a few more pictures to get you into it. But uh, anyway, they went into the toilet, which was 25 holes in the ground in a really smelly place, and the guards never went there. And so every Sunday they met like this in the toilets. And I said to her, what did you do when people came into the ladies' toilets? And she said, we assumed the position. I said, that's too much information. We'll just move on, if you don't mind. I said, well, how do you do church? And she said, well, I taught them the Apostles' Creed. 
So that's a really interesting thought. That's kind of the skeletal background about why we believe who we are in Jesus Christ. And then she said, on pieces of toilet paper, I wrote out my favorite verses, and we trafficked those verses to each other to encourage one another. And then we had communion with stale bread and a piece of filthy water. And she said, but the best bit was when it rains. And so I thought to myself, you'll really love Yorkshire. You should drive it to Yorkshire because it rains a lot in Yorkshire. I said, well, why did you love it when it rains? And she said, because we ran out into the open and raised our hands to heaven and worshipped our Lord Jesus Christ to the top of our voice because there was nobody watching. And then when it stopped raining, we reverted back into our rhythm. What, what a remarkable human being, I want to suggest to you. Confronted with some of the most scandalous and brutal behavior towards them as individuals, just a beautiful life spilled out. And as I uh, took her to the airport, here's the last picture of her leaving for Seoul. She's associate pastor of a church in Seoul in South Korea, having escaped the North. But you can see that she's diminutive. Here I am with Emma Worrell taking her to the airport. And I said to her, do you have a message from God for me? I don't say that to very many people. But people that I see the beauty of Christ in, I asked her, and she said to me, create an attitude of thankfulness, Brother Eddie. Create an attitude of thankfulness. This is a subversive truth. You know, I preach all around the country, and sometimes it's a bit like Kermit's movie. You know, the three grumpy men in the, in the, in the, uh, the kind of the opera bit, sort of looking at you. It's almost like a fusion with Strictly Come Dancing, 10 points for theological prowess, 10 points for a witty story at the beginning, 10 points for biblical underpinning, and 10 points for keeping people awake. You know, it's that kind of a thing. I'm so glad there's warm faces looking at this morning. But there's something wrong with the church. We seem to have forgotten our first love. We're so consumed by what we want and what are our rights that we've forgotten some of the fundamentals of our faith that to be joyful in God is what he calls us to. Because I have to tell you, in 21st century Britain, thankful people are very few and far between. And if we were to be who we really are meant to be, we would be a people that are full of joy. So in the last few minutes, I want to give you Eddie's four basic guides to how you can think about transforming your life into be thankful and grateful. Is that okay? Well, I'm glad it is because it's the only thing I've got to share with you this morning. So the first thing is to thank God for material blessings that we give you. It was so sweet. There's a little girl here with blonde hair who said, I've got a roof over my head and my home is warm. She has a right position, and that's when children can teach us fundamental truths. We have so much. Even if we have a roof over our head, we're 90% blessed more than other people in the entire world. We are rare to have this gift. Thank God for the people in your life. Really grateful for Lisa. She has been a champion keeping me running when I've got tired. And she has traveled with me and this church, praying for the persecuted church. You know there are 51,000 churches in England and Wales and barely a third of them are praying for their persecuted family. You've got a great leader and a pastor and an encourager. I guess there may be people in your life who are encouragers. Put your hand up if there's someone in your social circle who's an encourager in your life. Pop your hand up. Okay? The challenge for you is to become just like that so that this radiates and becomes different. Thank God that in the midst of trials and even persecution, do you know the truth? It takes a long time to learn it, that we learn more when life is difficult than when life is easy. Have you learned that lesson yet? Persecuted church, just an amazing 
resource of wealth of mercy and passion and grace and incredible encouragement to keep on running in the midst of difficulties. Corrie Ten Boom said, how do you know that Jesus is all that you need? And the rhetorical aspect of it is, is it's only when Jesus is all that you have. How do you know that Jesus is all that you need until Jesus is only you have? That's when the real currency starts to trade. Thank God especially for his salvation in Jesus Christ. We are so blessed to be loved by God. And we are saved for all eternity. Come on, church. This is the greatest thing that has ever happened. If we remember this, we'll be completely different people. Thank God for his continuous presence and power in our life. Pray for Christine and I. Our son Adam was diagnosed recently with epilepsy. We've been through a really hard year, but we do know that God is good and God is faithful and God is merciful and he has purposes for our life. Pray for us and remember that truth. Henri Noyen leaves us with almost a parting shot of wisdom. Every time I take a step in the direction of generosity, I know that I'm moving from fear to love. Every time I take a step in the direction of generosity, I know that I'm moving from fear to love. I started my journey with you this morning talking about Syria. Before I read this, I'm just going to say this one more time. Repetitive complaining will attract things for you to complain about. Repeated gratitude will attract things for you to be thankful about. This is a letter from Syria. It's difficult for me to read because I know this family. This is not going to be comfortable for you to hear, but it underlines the powerful truth that I'm trying to convey to you today, that we need to be a people that are pulsating thankfulness and gratitude because we were once alienated from God, but now we've been found and loved and saved, and God has a great purpose for us. Attacks on churches happen a lot now. They are targeting us. So many of us have been killed or kidnapped. When they kidnap someone, they ask their families for a ransom or force them to convert to Islam. Women are often raped and come back traumatized. Someone I know very well came back from a kidnapping and has never spoken a single word since. No one knows what happened to her. People wonder why I'm staying in Syria when we have families and opportunities abroad. Honestly, I ask myself the same question time after time after time. As a mother and a wife, I want to leave, but as a Christian, I want to stay. Every time my husband and I pray, God gives us a burden in our heart to stay in Syria. He has things for us to do here. But I ache at the thought of what it might cost. When we have a really good option to leave, but decided to stay, we knew that things were becoming very serious. I said to the Lord, we are ready to do whatever you want us to do. And I expected him to give me something courageous to do, or that flocks of people would start knocking the front door asking to follow Jesus. But instead he asked, will you die for me? I prayed and I fasted for one day, then I said yes. I will put myself on the altar, Father. Then he asked, how about your husband? Can you give me his life? I prayed and I fasted and eventually I said, yes, Lord, you can have my husband. I will put him on the altar. Finally, Jesus said, and how about your girls? Will you give me your girls? 
My husband and I prayed and fasted together and it was very hard and eventually we thought at least our children know God and at least they will go to heaven. It was very difficult, but finally we said, okay, Father, okay, Lord, we will give you our children. We will put our daughters on the altar. Then we thought, if we have given our children to Jesus, we need to prepare them to die well. I took them outside the front door and got them to look up and down the street. I said, one day a bomb may hit or someone will come down the street and put a sword to your necks. Don't say what they want you to say. Don't say anything about Islam, but just say that you forgive them and tell them Jesus loves them. There might be some pain and some blood, but we'll all be together with Jesus in heaven. As a family, we talk a lot about heaven now. God will bless Syria. I know this for sure. He is already blessing us. And every time we go to church, the church is full. People come together in times of despair, but we also see new faces every time. People who weren't Christians before the war are now, and they say, we've lost everything. Our house, our job, our family. But we have gained the most important thing of all, the knowledge that Jesus is our Savior. I feel God tangibly. Really feel as though he is holding us in his hand. We are still very scared though and we don't know if someone is planning to kidnap us and we want to be free from fear. Please, will you pray for us? Please, will you metaphorically embrace this watering can and pour your prayers of blessing and strengthening and God words over the church that is in Syria? That every time that you meet, that some soul would pray for the persecuted church. Second thing, this isn't a philanthropic interest. This isn't quintessentially a human rights matter. This is biblical. This is family. You know, if my sister was sick in Ireland, I couldn't get it out of my head. I would be praying for all the time. When one part of the body hurts in Hebrews, it says the whole body hurts. And if we don't tune in to the heart messages of our brothers and sisters, how can we live that out? So forgive me for the brutal nature of the letter that I've just read you, but how will you know if you're not told? How can you pray if you're not invited to pray intelligently beyond a sprinkling of a bless you prayer? We need to do more than that. God is blessing Syria. I know that. I hear this every day. I hear about Muslims having dreams of a man in white who presents himself to them saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. My name is Jesus. I mean, how good is that? We have testimonies now of Daesh and ISIS warriors that are having dreams and are coming into the church because God has saved their souls. We just need hearts of flesh. And we need to weigh the word this morning, maybe over Sunday lunch, there could be 10 minutes where we look at each other and say thank you for each other. Thank you for this home. Thank you for the meal. Thank you for the bounty that God has given us. Thank you for this church. Thank you for religious freedom. Thank you for being able to read the Bible. Thank you for being able to talk about Jesus without fear. We are a blessed people. Let's be thankful. Thanks for listening. <laughs>